and we're continuing where we left off last week. Just um, had the Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples shared that together. And uh, during which time he infused the Passover celebration with new meaning. All of this pointed to him, pointed to his death. He himself was our Passover lamb, as Paul would later remind the Corinthians. Jesus taught that when we obey this command, do this in remembrance of me, we eat the bread and we drink the wine in celebration of his body broken and his blood poured out. And with deep gratitude for our salvation, the salvation of those who, through faith, together, have entered into this new covenant with God. That's what this is about. And we're going to do this today. And we should be excited about this. Uh, I think we get excited about baptisms. That's good. We should get excited about the Lord's Supper. God forbid that this great salvation that we celebrate together should ever become something that we just, you know, a tradition that that is um, heartlessly and mindlessly uh, participated in. We don't want that. If it ever becomes that, we might as well just stop doing it. It's widely believed that the Last Supper celebration was held in the home of the author of this gospel. And that Mark himself may have been an eyewitness to these things, including what we're going to read this morning in our text. Last week, we read that when they finished the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples left the house and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And when they were there, as you'll recall, Jesus predicted they would all fall away. Peter and then the rest of the disciples assured Jesus that he had it all wrong. Well, we're going to find out who was right. So Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning a third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, 
The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is life to us. We say with Peter that you have the words of eternal life. And we find refuge in this truth that you have preserved for us. God, please let us not treat this like other words. Let us not treat this like just another book of spiritual wisdom that is life. Help us, God, with the right hearts to to reflect on what you have for us today. And God, if any of us would be holding out on you in some way, not surrendered to you, we pray that your spirit would break us down today. That through the truth of what we are about to study together, God, that you would help us to become more sensitive to you and what you want for us in our lives. Help us to apply these truths to ourselves and and help me, Lord, because I know I am not even worthy to preach the word. I pray this morning, God, that um, the focus would be entirely on you and on your son, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. It was a relatively short walk. Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives. You could actually visit there today if you wanted to. It's a real place. And um, they still grow olives there. Did you guys go to Gethsemane when you were there? Yeah. Neat. The word Gethsemane means oil press. It's agreed that there was a, 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 an oil press there in the grove. Interesting name. Brings to mind this image of, of olives being crushed and squeezed and, and pressed for their oil. But this night, it would not be olives. It would be Jesus. Jesus is going into the press himself, figuratively speaking. It's a fitting name, Gethsemane. Verse 32 reads, Then they went to a place called Gethsemane, 
And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. So best we can tell, Jesus dropped off the eight at a certain point, maybe maybe nine, actually, maybe Mark with them. We'll talk about that idea later. But he dropped them off in a certain place and with the instructions, stay here, stay put. And then he went a little further in with his inner circle, the three. And the question is, why? Why did he take them there? Some say it was because he was lonely and he wanted the company. This seems doubtful to me anyway. Uh, for all their obliviousness to his situation, I almost think that their presence would have intensified his loneliness. I think he took them further for their sake, to teach them, to prepare them. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Ben Witherington says, to translate these verbs literally, Jesus is shuddering in distress and is appalled and anguishing. Jesus has, in Gethsemane, become the righteous sufferer of Psalm 55. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught at the voice of the enemy, at the stares of the wicked, for they bring down suffering upon me and revile me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. The Passover was instituted as a night of watching. It was a vigil, according to Exodus 12, which reads, Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord. For the generations to come. And in verse 34, we see that this is the disciples' assignment to keep watch, which included the duty to be prayerful because there was a heaviness that was in the air. They didn't feel it, but Jesus did. It was pressing him, he was deeply distressed. I think Christians can sometimes tend to emphasize the deity of Christ, which is good because he is divine. He is God and was God. And so we stress that. But I also think that Christians can sometimes minimize or dismiss or neglect Jesus's humanity. And that's bad because he was and is human. At times I've gotten the impression, just kind of talking to people and, and, and reading, I've kind of gotten the impression that sometimes Christians think that Jesus really didn't have to experience the full uh, effects of our human problems. You know what I mean? Human problems, we've all got them. Almost like Jesus could just pull out the divine card and, and make everything easy. 
as if in those tough moments, you know, people don't like me. They're slandering me. They're lying about me. I'm going to snap my fingers. I'll make them all like me. I'll make all my, my relationship problems go away. Or, you know, I just dropped this tool on my foot. Ouch, that hurts. Oh, I forgot. I'm God. I'll make the pain go away. Or somebody burnt the meal. I'll make it taste good. It, it, I don't think that's how it worked. Jesus was fully human. And he didn't become human in order to escape human problems. He came into this world as a genuine human to experience genuine humanity, to gain the full human experience, which included what? Pain and difficulty. We know it. So did he. And he knew it as well as any of us. In this case, anticipating what was ahead, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In other words, his internal agony was so engulfing that he apparently felt as if he could die in that moment. Now, why such a reaction from Jesus? Was it merely the terror at the prospects of his physical suffering, his physical pain, his physical death? Is that it? I think it was more. Jesus was very well acquainted with Psalm 22. It was about him, after all. I'm sure he had it committed to memory. And now he is stepping into it to live it out. The psalmist had declared the words that Jesus is going to quote when he's on the cross. You know them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew this was coming. He could feel it. Jesus is being pressed in at Gethsemane. And he knows that as bad as that physical suffering will be, something much worse is looming. Namely, temporary abandonment in some sense. A severing in some sense of the perfect relationship that he had enjoyed with the Father from all eternity. As wrath and judgment are poured out on him. Jesus tried to communicate his distress to his disciples. I don't think they got it. I don't think they understood what he was talking about. But failing to understand does not remove the obligation to obey. Okay? Let me say that again. For any of us who sometimes read the Word of God and we sense that maybe we don't quite comprehend maybe the reason for a command or the command itself, maybe we don't quite get it. Failing to understand does not remove the obligation to obey. Jesus told them to stay and keep watch. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Note, first of all, how Jesus addresses the Father. I don't think he's used this, uh, this term before in Mark's Gospel, Abba. Abba is the most intimate way of addressing God. I've read many times that the closest thing we have to it in the English language is the word Daddy. And I'm not sure that even quite captures it. Note also Jesus' posture. My understanding is that the typical posture 
for a Jew in prayer would be to stand and raise hands toward heaven. Only in the most desperate times would someone prostrate oneself on the ground. And when you picture this prayer, don't picture uh, Hannah. You remember Hannah's prayer? She was over there praying and, um, and her lips were moving, but Eli couldn't hear the words because she was praying silently. I don't think it was like that. The writer of Hebrews records this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And just the wording here and the mention of death leads a lot of scholars to think that this is a reference to his prayer in Gethsemane. And if so, then the disciples would have surely heard it. In the prayer itself, notice two figures of speech here. Both point to the same thing. We have the hour, and we're going to see that expression again in a moment. The hour and the cup. Both stood for the suffering that Jesus was about to experience. Psalm 75 tells of the cup of God's wrath. And all the wicked of the earth were going to be forced to drink it. The cup of God's wrath. But now the father takes that dreadful cup and he sets it in front of his son. And he wouldn't be forced to drink it. It would be his choice. Jesus had previously spoken of this cup. Remember when James and John requested of him, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink? We can, they answered. That claim is about to be tested. Will their character match up to their confidence? Now, before we move on, I want to be clear on something. Look at Jesus' request in verse 36. Everything we know about Jesus tells us that he was ready to accept any assignment from the Father. Especially if you read the Gospel of John, which really explores the relationship of Jesus to the Father, you see his submission. Everything we know about Jesus, we, we know he's not bucking this here. So I think it's safe to assume that the essence of his prayer was not some request that, that God would, you know, take him up into heaven and, and he would immediately escape and ascend and get away from humanity. I don't think that's it at all. I think he was asking the Father if there was perhaps an alternative method by which he could save us. In any case, he was resolved in that moment to submit to the Father's will, whatever it might be. He taught his disciples to pray, your will be done, right? And so he said, your will be done, not mine. And that's just how he lived his life, completely surrendered to the will of God. John 4, verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So many people driven by their stomachs, like, but my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of the Father. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Verse 37, then Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon 
He said to Peter, Are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. I think the spirit, I think, should probably be capitalized there. Not, not, probably not a reference to the human spirit. What is our defense against temptation? Oh, we have several, but Jesus gives us our defense here. Pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The Holy Spirit is willing. He is eager to help when we are weak and we're always weak. That's why we need to pray. Pray. Do you think to pray when you are facing temptation? Hebrews says Jesus experienced everything that we experience, and he's able to help us. And the Holy Spirit is willing and eager to help us. Unfortunately, they neglected that help. Verse 39, once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And this reminds me of the parable in Luke 18. You remember the parable that Jesus told about this widow who was trying to get justice from, from the, the judge. And it says day after day she kept going back and she, she prayed the same thing over and over. Same request. Here in verse 39 it says Jesus went away and prayed the same thing. I imagine he probably used different words, but the same basic idea. This should not surprise us. He is in distress. I wonder if we even begin to appreciate what he went through for us in Gethsemane. You know, we just this morning we sang a song about the crown, the, 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 the suffering on the cross that he went through. And that is obviously very real. We think about that. We sing about that. How often do we think about what he did in Gethsemane, what he went through for us? Just as Jesus was repeating his own prayer and his own behavior, verse 40, it says, When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Embarrassed, I take it to mean. This is the exact same wording. If you remember back in the, the story of the transfiguration, Peter's embarrassing, fumbling with words and says they didn't know what to say. Same thing here. Jesus would go away one last time. And then in verse 41, returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? There are several threes in this text. Three times Jesus went away to pray. And uh, this is what men of God were known to do in desperate situations. You think of Second Corinthians 12, uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh. He wants it gone. He says three times I pleaded with God to take it away from me. Or you can think about Daniel uh, three times praying up in his window and three times Jesus prays. And he returned to his disciples to find that Peter had disobeyed and fallen asleep three times. And on that same night, he would go on to deny Christ that same number of times. Three. Are we supposed to take that as a coincidence? Doubtful. Three mentions of anything in the scripture can be used to express fullness 
or completion. God is described, for example, as holy, holy, holy. And you can know that there's nothing that can be added to his holiness. It is complete. Some see Mark's mention of this third failure now on the part of the disciples as his way of indicating that the disciples' failure was utter and complete. There was no failure that could be added to it. Of all the disciples' embarrassing moments, and we've read a lot of them, right, through Mark, this is the culmination. They're all just shadows of this evening, and it's only going to get worse. Now, on that note, um, while I'm thinking about it, remember how this gospel came about. You have to go all the way back to when we introduced this book. It is generally agreed upon from, from scholars that Mark's gospel was comprised from having taken very careful notes on Peter's sermons in Rome. There's good evidence that Mark's gospel comes straight from the guy, the text tells us, that fell asleep three times after Jesus commanded him to stay awake and keep watch. The guy who did that preached that, and Mark recorded it. The same guy whose arrogant guarantee that he would stand firm even if everybody else fell away, I will be there for you, Jesus. And he even contradicted Jesus in that, that Mark is getting that information from that guy, right? The guy whose miserable failures are recorded here in this text. And it's only going to get worse. And so um, there is this, it's called the, the criterion of embarrassment. If you are reading a, a text, an ancient historical text, and you want to know, can I believe this thing? Is it legit? Is it genuine? One thing that people look for is, does that text include embarrassing details? Things that would embarrass either the author himself or the hero of the story. And we got it all over in the, in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark almost certainly came to us from Peter. If you're ever wondering, can I believe this story? Be confident that you can so Jesus comes back one final time. They're still asleep. He says, enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So Jesus had gotten his answer. He had said, he had prayed, let this hour pass. And this hour is, a lot of times it's, there's this sense of judgment. It's the moment. Let this hour pass. And now he says the hour has come. He got his answer. The answer is no. Sometimes the answer is no. It doesn't mean you weren't heard. There was no alternative to this cup. And because it was the Father's will, Jesus was ready to drink it. The matter was settled. He had gone through his long night of anguish. Maybe a better way to put it is that he had pushed through his long night. Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam has succeeded. He overcame in the Garden of Gethsemane.
Some believe that this episode here in, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane is what Luke was referring to. If you go to Luke chapter 4 and you read about the temptation of Christ, um, it's also Matthew 4. But in Luke's gospel, it says that when, when, when he had finally given up the devil, and he says, uh, it says that he left Jesus for a more opportune time. Remember that? And some people think this is what Luke was talking about. Gethsemane. Isn't it true that humans are often at our most vulnerable when we are distressed, discouraged emotionally, tired, anxious? That's when temptation seems to hit us the hardest. Though we might have a sense of it, I doubt any of us will ever know exactly what Christ pushed through for us that night. The agony as he sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane. You know, we can read about it in less than a minute. But for Jesus, the, the minutes must have seemed like hours. And the hours must have seemed like days. But he pushed through. We admire that, don't we? When people push through, when they persevere, when they face their challenges head on and they tough it out. Even in just the normal things of life, if you think about it, think about an athlete who gets a a potentially career-ending injury, and yet he pushes through, and he goes through months and months of of agonizing physical therapy, and he doesn't give up, and a year later he's back on the court or back on the field, and, and we admire that. We say that's inspiring. But here's the question. Why? Why did he do it? Why did he push through and persevere? I had a friend whose dad started a successful manufacturing plant. And, and then one day my friend said, yeah, his, his first two attempts failed. But he pushed through. We admire that. But the question is, why? Why do any of us persevere? What are the motives? Are we possibly doing it for ourselves? Years ago, my vehicle broke down in Chillicothe. It happened to be at a Walmart in Chillicothe. And uh, we tried and tried to figure out the problem. It was quite the ordeal. We weren't getting anywhere. We were at our wit's end. Uh, It turned out to be an electrical issue. But it took a lot of tinkering and tools we didn't have and time. Um, several hours, I believe, but we stuck with it. We didn't give up. We persevered. I say we. No, not me and my best friend. Me and a guy I didn't even know. A total stranger who early on in this disaster had just happened to walk by and see me under the hood. He made my problem his own problem. And he wasn't even a Christian brother. And I kept thinking the whole time, how much more is this guy going to (laughs) take? At any minute, he's going to walk away. He didn't. He he stuck with it to the end. I have, have to wonder, I'm kind of afraid to ask this question. What if the roles were reversed? Would I have stuck it out for him? Would I have stood out there in the rain? Or would I have given him five minutes and said, hey, 
Good luck. I'm, I'm not a mechanic, but I, I hope it goes well. I've noticed this about myself. I am capable of pushing through and persevering, and I've done it many times. Unfortunately, most of the time, it's for me. It's for self. This stranger made my problem his problem. And that's when when persevering through challenging trials becomes a lot more difficult and a lot more admirable. What makes Jesus' hellish night in Gethsemane remarkable is that this was our problem. He took up this struggle for us. When you appreciate the work of Christ, do you think of that night in Gethsemane? That was a hellish night. How easy it would have been for him to say, enough, this isn't even my problem. He didn't do that. He did it to please the Father and to save us, not for himself. What's more, unlike this guy in Chillicothe, as as admirable as that was, Jesus wasn't doing this to help a stranger. Do you know what the Bible says about our state? Colossians says because of our, our, our sin, we had made ourselves God's enemies. We are enemies. Jesus did this for those who were his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus pushed through. And what's he say at the end? Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Not meaning rise, let's go, head for the hills. That's, that's what I would have said, probably. No, rise, let's go out to meet him. Let's get on with this. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders. Who was in this crowd? Well, based on what we read from other Gospels, it was probably both the temple police and Roman soldiers. We also learned that Judas was leading the pack. He was in front. I wonder if those swords and clubs made them feel powerful against their creator. What futility, really. Think about it. This is the one who, with a word, brought the world into existence. This is the one who, with a word, calmed the raging sea. Just said, be still. And with a word, Jesus could have just stopped the beating of their hearts. Unbeknownst to them, it was not weakness, but love that prevented that word. And Judas, talk about a sad scene. This has to be one of the saddest scenes in the whole Bible. 
What had Jesus ever done to Jesus except love him? Love him like no one had ever loved him. Loved him perfectly and never failed to love him perfectly. And there he is, hunting down the one who had loved him, leading this mob to arrest Jesus and and lead him off to death. And for what? Silver. 30 pieces of silver. My friends, beware. It's, it's not for no reason that Paul told Timothy that the, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And if you think, oh, well, I'm the exception. I can, I can I'll chase money. I can love money. It's not going to lead to evil for me. Well, the love of money itself is an evil. If you think you're an exception, picture that night in Gethsemane. If you think it could never change you, picture Judas in your mind. Picture, picture Judas's feet marching toward Jesus. And when you picture them, remember they're clean. Jesus had just washed them. Money is okay. Nothing wrong with money. The love of money can lead into the worst kind of evil. Judas, case in point. Now the betrayer, verse 44, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And this old song from Michael Card came to mind this week. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? And why did he use a kiss to show? That's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. If you think, oh, Jesus had already written Judas off. No, I think it hurt. I think it hurt for him to be betrayed. Now get this. The Greek word here that is translated kissed in verse 45, this is not the normal word that is used in the New Testament for a kiss. Actually, it only occurs three other times. First was to describe, Luke used this word to describe the prolonged kisses of the woman who was anointing Jesus' feet. And it says that she kissed him over and over. You remember that story? It was also used by Jesus to describe the way that the prodigal son, upon returning home, was received by his father. You remember that touching scene when the father kissed his son? And the word was used to describe the way that the believers in Ephesus re, uh, basically said goodbye to Paul when they found out that Paul was going away to his death. And this was their last time that they'd ever seen him. It says they fell on his neck and kissed him. So you see how this word is used in Scripture to convey the very deepest affection. And so the irony isn't simply that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. He betrayed him with the kind of kiss that was reserved to express the deepest and most sincere love and loyalty. That's the kiss that Judas gave Jesus. To quote Pastor Kent Hughes, he said, Judas's kiss showed 
how low a human heart can go. So Judas now vanishes into the night and out of the story. You will not hear his name again in this gospel. Verse 46, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. John's gospel tells us that when Jesus announced, uh, I am, when he said, I am he, and he used that formula for expressing divinity, when he announced, I am, what happened to this crowd? Do you remember? It says they drew back and fell to the ground. And maybe it was that that accounts for Peter's sudden burst of courage here, but it was courage of the wrong kind, and it was only momentary. Luke's gospel adds that Jesus reached out and healed the man's ear. You remember that? We also learn from other accounts that Jesus rebuked Peter, told him to put away his sword, and he informed them that he had at his disposal 72,000 angels that he could have summoned if he had wanted to. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, verse 48, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. See, had Jesus been leading a rebellion, he could have been easily arrested in the temple courts, even when surrounded by the Galileans who were supportive of him, the Galileans that were intimidating to the religious leaders. But if if he had been leading a rebellion, this would have been a Roman issue. And the Galileans did not intimidate the Romans. The reason it was happening in the dark of night and in a remote place is precisely because the Jewish leaders knew that they had no such case against him. In spite of this, the scriptures must be fulfilled, Jesus stated. Which ones? Well, I I assume it's all, all of the ones that speak about the suffering Messiah. Um, maybe especially Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. That would be a good study for your family. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Just as Jesus had predicted only hours earlier. This very night, you will all fall away. Those who had protested and contradicted Jesus. Oh, no, Jesus. Not just wait, just wait, Jesus. You don't know what we're made of. Where are they now? You know, it's not just the disciples who are capable of this sort of thing. Don't we all have a tendency to overestimate ourselves? I know I do. The sooner we get this in our heads, the better. We are made of flesh. We are weak. We are selfish. We are sinful, and we need him. We need his Holy Spirit. We need his power to be faithful. The disciples were looking at themselves and saying, you know, I'm kind of impressed with what I see. No. It's all of us. Any success, any success in the face of temptation, folks, is owed To God's strength in us. Closing out our text, verse 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. 
When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Was this the gospel writer himself? Most scholars seem to think so. It's possible that Mark was in the home that night when they celebrated the Last Supper. Uh, Maybe he wasn't there, but maybe he was off sleeping. And maybe when they all got up to leave to go out to the Mount of Olives, maybe it stirred him and he awakened and hastily left with them, not having time to get fully dressed. And some say, well, if he's referring to himself, why didn't he just say so? Well, first of all, it's not uncommon in ancient literature for authors to anonymously write about themselves. But the thing that convinces me that this is Mark, uh, if you compare Mark's gospel to the other gospels, he leaves out a lot of details. Anything that's not like absolutely crucial, it seems like he leaves it out. He's very concise. If, if this wasn't Mark, why even include this in the story? There are so many other things that, that seem like they're more essential to the story. I happen to think this was Mark's signature. I think he was telling the audience I was there. I testify. I fled too. Next week... So on to the high priest and the Sanhedrin and to the trial, if we can even call it a trial. What was it that Jesus pushed through that night for us? What, what was it that he pushed through and persevered through? There's no denying that part of Jesus's torment was looking ahead at his physical pain and suffering and physical death. But as I mentioned earlier, there was more to it. Sometimes we sing these words, You were broken that I might be healed. You were cast off that I might come near. The dread that Jesus felt that night had to be because he realized he was on the brink of separation. That separation that Jesus dreaded and then experienced was for our benefit so that we, the already separated, could be reconciled and could draw near to God. 